0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista DeGinney Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 18, 2013, and we will be presenting Part 22 of our presentation on the Book of Acts, Acts Chapter 16, Part 2. I have a few thoughts before i'd like to begin before I begin tonight that I'd like to get out several white nationalists, one of them marginally christian, the other one claims he's a christian i don't I, I don't get it they they've been doing um internet radio programs with negroes i don't get it that, that's what republicans do white nationalists don't do those things, not real white nationalists. There have been about 40 years of that in so-called white nationalist and Christian patriot circles, and it's gotten us absolutely nowhere, zero. Conciliation, appeasement, compromise, there are things the Republicans do. Real white Christians should have no room in their lives whatsoever for niggers. Let the niggers take care of themselves at, at the most. We don't need to be to, to follow in the path of David Duke or, or, or mainstream Republicans. We don't need to conciliate niggers. We don't need to appease niggers. To a real Christian, niggers should be like the dog down the street. They don't exist. They don't matter. They're out of our picture until he comes to bite your kid. And, and, and then you do what you have to do to take care of them, to take care of that situation. We don't need to follow in the footsteps of all those who have erred before us in endeavors to be rational-looking or, or to look intelligent or to, look, or, or to seek popularity. Compromise is not the answer. It's never been the answer. It's plainly spelled out in the Bible that we should never compromise, make no covenants with them. That's what we're told. Never seek their peace. That's what we're told. They can just leave. They're non-entities. And not only blacks or Negroes or whatever you want to call them, but yellow people, and if you want to call them people. That's another issue. Squat monsters. That'll do it. Yellow aliens, brown aliens, green aliens, gray aliens. They should all be treated the same. They shouldn't be treated. They have no say. Well, we we don't What well, when do you ask your dog what your dog wants for dinner? Who does that? Or your cat? Since when did you go to your dog and say, Spot, what do you want for dinner tonight? You want the steak, or do you want the Alpo again? We don't ask our pets what they want for dinner. We don't appease Negroes. We don't appease aliens. We just tell them where the door is. That's all we do. They're non-entities to us. I've been asked recently by a guy. I actually liked a guy. I'm not going to mention his name. And um, he asked me to come on his program. I hadn't been on it in a while, and I had just um, chastised another so-called white nationalist for for appearing on, on on this program with a couple with a couple of niggers. And I'm not going to be on, on, on any of those programs. I, I look at the list of, of guests he's had recently, and I see a Jew and a nigger. I don't want my name next to the names of a Jew and a nigger. No, I'm not going to do his program. It, it's unfortunate that it has to be that way. But white nationalists, but we shouldn't be Republicans. We're not Republicans. Join the Republican Party. You want to go appease niggers and and, and Jews. It, it's not for us. What we, especially Christians, what we have a commandment. We in identity Christianity know damn well that we should be absolutely, totally separate from all of the aliens. We should separate ourselves. That that's the example that we have to set, even if we can't. In 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 this um. Diversified society in which we live, even if we have to deal with them from time to time, we only give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? We do absolutely what we have to do to get by, so that we could give to Yahweh what is Yahweh's. That's our that's our duty. So we don't appease, conciliate, and and compromise with Negroes. We don't go out of our way to. But we, we shouldn't even recognize that, that they have a legitimate voice in our society. Uh, I mean, there are things that we might have to do if, if we're corporate slaves or, or, or um, whores for the system, and, and that's the only way we can make our living, fine. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not going to judge a man for that, but we don't have to go on talk shoes with them. Well, We don't have to go on radio programs with them and appease them. Well, we just don't. So that's what I feel about that. It's it's the road to hell. It's the wide gate. The wide gate that leads to destruction, and many will find it. That's what it is. And with that, I will commence my presentation of the book of Acts, chapter 16, part 2. In the first part of Acts chapter 16, we saw that Paul of Tarsus departed from Antioch with his new companion, Silas, to embark on what would be the second recorded missionary journey, which he undertook. Ostensibly, however, it is really his third missionary journey. That said, um, yes, 2,000 years of commentators have gotten it wrong. Since when Paul departed from Jerusalem for Tarsus after his dispute with the Hellenists, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9, it is made manifest later that Paul had spent at least some portion of that time proselytizing in Tarsus and in other places in Cilicia. This is made evident in Acts chapter 15, verse 41. We're embarking on this journey with Silas, it says there, that they passed through Syria and Colicia, reinforcing the assemblies. From there, and and that demonstrates right there that there must have been assemblies in those places, which he had established because he felt that he should go back and reinforce them. From there, Acts chapter 16, we see Paul return to Iconium and Leicester and Derbe. From there he was steered away from Asia and Pamphylia. So that he would get on a boat, And head to Macedonia, which is where he is now, in Philippi, a Roman colony, a prominent city of Macedonia. He and Luke, on the Sabbath day, exit the gate of the city to the river where the Hebrews, where the Hebrew peoples, where the Judeans were accustomed to pray. There's one thing I missed in the close to my Acts chapter 15 presentation, which I have to apologize for. Explaining Galatians chapter 2 in correlation with the events in Acts, we had asserted here that the confrontation with Peter in Antioch, which Paul describes in that letter, must have taken place sometime after Paul's having circumcised Timothy, which is described in the opening of Acts chapter 16. Doing that, we overlooked the fact that Paul did indeed visit Antioch in Syria on one more occasion. And, and what I did was, when, when I was researching that, uh, I had um, seen Antioch in company with Galatia and Phrygia and automatically assumed it was Pisidian Antioch. And when I reread it, Researching this program, I, I realized that it wasn't—it was Antioch in Syria. So I missed—I I missed this last visit of Paul's to Antioch. It, it's only one line. It's easy to forget. It's nothing to remember in, in Scripture. Believe me, when you when you've read it, when you, when you've read it a, a, a dozen times, <laughs> the the um, Paul visited. Antioch in Syria on one more occasion of which nothing is recorded in the book of Acts except the brief mention of Paul's visit there. And it's in Acts chapter 18 where upon Paul's having made arrangements to sail from Syria or to sail to Syria and departing from Ephesus Luke records this in Acts 18.22 And coming back into Caesarea, of course, they would sail from Ephesus to Caesarea. And going up and greeting the assembly, he went down into Antioch. And spending some time, he departed, passing through successively the land of Galatia and Phrygia. Confirming all of the students. So that's a long, that, that's a long um, journey by land from Antioch and Syria across two-thirds of Anatolia, perhaps, into Galatia and Phrygia. Confirming all of the students. That visit to Antioch, I would assert, is where Paul must have confronted Peter. It may be, and this is conjecture, it may be that because of the division among the apostles, Luke never recorded anything that had transpired during that later visit to Antioch. It says Paul spent some time there, and that's it. That's all it says. But in Acts 18, chapter 22, where he's recorded as visiting Antioch, that must be where he confronted Peter and where he talks about having observed the hypocrisy of Barnabas. And, and some of the other apostles. There's no other occasion where that could have happened. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more at, at when, we, when we present Acts chapter 18. With that, we will proceed with Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. And there was a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, respecting Yahweh, who listened, who listened to Paul speaking, preaching the gospel to these people, whose heart the prince opened to heed the things being spoken by Paul. And as she and her house were immersed, she exhorted, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the prince or in the Lord, entering into my house, you stay. And she compelled us. Paul's custom in each town he visited was to first go to the Judean assembly hall, using that as a starting point to preach the gospel to both Judeans and to non-Judeans alike. And many of those assembly halls were attended by both, quite often by Judeans and by Greeks. However, here in Philippi, there is no mention of such a hall, where it is apparent that the Judean population of the city may not have been large enough to support one. Therefore, as we witnessed at the close of the last segment of this presentation, from the writings of the prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, where there is no assembly hall or temple, the ancient Hebrews were accustomed to gathering by a river to pray. And ostensibly, the people of Judea continued in that custom to this time. It was also observed last week that this is the most likely reason for the success of the ministry of John the Baptist, since evidently many people in Judea in the first century had gathered by the rivers on the Sabbaths for prayer. With this, along with the testimony that Lydia was a pious woman, it is evident that she was also a Judean. Originally from Tuatira, a city in Asia, Asia Minor. A city of the ancient and former kingdom of Lydia, the same name as this woman. And under Greek rule, the country retained that name, although the kingdom itself was decimated by the Persians under Xerxes in the 5th century BC, before his invasion of Greece. To so Tyra was one of the seven assemblies later addressed by Joshua Christ in the Revelation. Some sources, I haven't been able to verify this from original documentation, some sources state that Thuatira was the center of the ancient fabric and dye trade. Many commentaries like to point out that Lydia was the first so-called European Christian. However, that is certainly not true. Here the year is 47 or perhaps 48 A.D., and from the edict of Claudius and the history behind that edict, it is quite evident that there were already a significant number of Christians in Rome by this time who had been brought to Christ independently of either Paul or Luke or Barnabas or Peter or James, for that matter. Therefore, Lydia is the only person, is only the first person recorded in the biblical accounts as having been accepting of the faith while being in Europe. But she was not necessarily the first who did so. And she herself was said to be from Anatolia, and she was obviously a Judean. A significant proportion of Bible commentaries make their judgments by examining the Bible in an incubator, not considering the things that transpired in the world outside of the biblical records. While it it was clear, what, what is clear, I'm sorry, what is clear from this account is that Lydia was a woman And that Paul not only must have felt that it was acceptable to approach a woman, but Paul was also quite comfortable approaching a woman with the gospel message, a woman who he did not even know. It is also certain that Lydia did not have a husband since he is never mentioned, And since she is depicted as having invited Paul and his company into her house on her own decision. Now, if Paul himself were married, and and this is important to understanding marital relations and and marital conditions in the spread of the gospel, because it applies just as well today. If Paul himself were married, he would have had his own wife with him in all of these circumstances. And he attests that. He attested to that in one Corinthians chapter nine verse five, where he asks, "Do we not have license to always have with us a kinswoman, a wife, as also the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord?" I'm paraphrasing my own translation, and Cephas. And what Paul is telling us is that Peter always had his wife with him, and so did James and Jude, who were the brethren of the, of the Lord, the elder James, and the other apostles. So if Paul had a wife, he would have brought her around with him. Yet, then he explains that for the sake of the gospel, he himself would rather not be burdened with the responsibility of having a wife. So he remained single. He was a young man when he began this trek. He was described as a youth when the book of Acts began. When Paul first appeared in it at the stoning of Stephen, Paul was described as a youth, a neanias in Greek. A man probably under 30 years old would be my guess. That Paul treated women equally with men in the transmission of the gospel message, that's not to say they had the same station in society, but equally with men in the transmission of the gospel message is fully evident. Here, And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 28, where he says, There is neither Judean nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, Yahshua. Of course, all Christians have different stations in life, not only men and women. However, in the eyes of our creator, not one of us is better than another. And while women could not speak in the assembly nor be teachers of men, they still served the assemblies in other capacities which were just as valuable. They were called diaconoi, diaconis as a minister, servant. A servant should always be the way that term's understood. They were messengers. They were fellow workers. Lydia also owned a business as a seller of purple. This meant that she sold purple cloth and purple dye, which had limited use in Rome, The use of clothing, what one wore or what one was permitted to wear in public, the Negroes would hate this, was heavily regulated in the Roman Empire by both law and custom. You just couldn't put on loud clothes and walk the streets in public. Oh no, you'd be pulled over real quick. Kings, Roman magistrates, and priests the Roman pagan priests, used purple in their garments. Children of the Roman upper class wore togas with broad purple borders. So did magistrates. Now, ostensibly, there could have been other household or decorative uses for such cloth, aside from clothing. Among the ancient Greek city-states, it would have been quite improper for Paul to approach these women. It would have also been impossible for Lydia to have had a business and a household of her own. In ancient Greece, women, in ancient Athens in particular, Women could not make property transactions of any significant value. I believe the limit was a bushel at one time. And they could only come to own property in very limited circumstances, since women did not normally inherit property. Only sons did. Sons and and brothers of the deceased. Women could only inherit property in ancient Greece from their own brothers, but not from their husbands and not from their fathers. Women did not normally inherit property, and they themselves were treated as property. However, Rome had a much more liberal attitude towards women regarding participation in business, business ownership, and property rights. And Rome even had a much more liberal attitude towards women in property rights and divorce cases. In Rome, women could own property and hold it separately from that of her husband. Evidently, Lydia had no problem trading in the empire and having her own business. That Lydia and her house were immersed does not mean that a water baptism ritual was conducted. And even if it were that such a thing is now necessary in order to come to Christ, while the book of Acts is a book which records a religious transition And while it cannot be told exactly when Paul came to the full realization of the faith which he expressed in his later epistles, we have already seen Peter's explanation that the household of Cornelius received the Holy Spirit without any water baptism ritual, and that in connection with that very event, Peter himself later professed, as it's recorded in Acts 11.16, then I, then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, quoting the King James Version. It is therefore more likely, in spite of their presence at the river, that Lydia and her house were immersed in the Holy Spirit in the words of Paul, in the words being spoken by Paul when their hearts were opened to heed the things being spoken by Paul, as it says here. And as Paul later wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, that the assembly of Christ would be cleansed with the washing of water by the word. Verse 16, And it came to pass, upon our going to the prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of a python, met with us, who, it, who produced much business for her masters by divining. I have a few long history. Long historical divergences tonight, and this is one of them, or or maybe the second. The Codex Bezi has that her her masters produced much business for her masters because of this divining. Sorcery is a racket. Perhaps as old as prostitution. And prostitution was also a lucrative business for the pagan temples of antiquity. So I'm sure the slave girl probably became a whore because she couldn't divine anymore after Paul threw the devil out of her, the demon. Where the King James Version, here in this, in, in this verse of Acts sixteen sixteen has the word divination. The girl had a spirit of divination. The Greek word is Python or Python properly. Python is the word which we get the word Python from in English in reference to the snake, right? And therefore here I've left the word simply transliterated as Python because when I made my translation I did not want to lose the connection to the mythological serpent Python which both the choice of words in the text of Luke here, as well as the traditions of the Greeks. The use of this word had directly connected these powers of divination to the, to the idol, the, the so-called god of the Greeks, called Apollo. In Greek legend... Greek legend, a thousand years old at, at Paul's time, at least. In Greek legend, Apollo slew the python, which guarded, which guarded Delphi, which was described, this python was described alternatively as either a serpent or a dragon. And when Apollo slew the python, he had gained control of the powers of divination, which were associated with the temple with the place at Delphi. The place where Delphi was located was then called Pytho, after the Python, right, which was thereafter considered to be the home of Apollo. The priestess of Apollo at Delphi was called the Pythoness, whose oracles were believed to reveal future events. According to the Homeric hymn, entitled To Pythian Apollo, a priesthood of men from Crete. So we see a Mediterranean connection here. There's no doubt that this came right from Palestine with the paganism of the children of Israel. A priesthood of men from Crete was said to have been appointed by Apollo himself to keep the oracle of Delphi and to make their livelihoods from its proceeds, which throughout ancient history were rather plentiful. Delphi was a pretty profitable place. Delphi was the most important of all such oracles, and there were others. Delphi was the most important oracle in the ancient Greek world. An eternal flame was kept in its temple, where there was a crevice in the earth from which a gas was emitted. And one thing I didn't write into my notes was that legend had it that the gas was actually the fumes of the rotting snake. All of the Greek cities traditionally received and burned a flame, which was acquired from the so-called eternal flame at Delphi. Breathing the gas supposedly gave the Pythoness her powers of divination. And her oracles were not issued immediately, but instead they were formulated apart from those who were making the inquiry. Throughout the accounts of the ancient poets and historians, the words of the Pythonists at Delphi were esteemed to have a considerable impact Upon the events of the entire Greek world, colonies were ventured, wars were fought, and alliances between nations and kings were made or broken by the results of inquiries to the oracle. Imagine the political power that the priesthood of Delphi had in their control of the words which the Pythonists issued. And great men from around the Greek world, for many centuries, possibly more than 15 centuries, kings and other notable men consulted with the oracle in reference to their endeavors. They wouldn't do anything unless they sent a messenger, a messenger to the oracle at Delphi, with the, with the question of, of whether or not they should fight a war or whether or not they should form a, a colonial venture and, and make a colony overseas. On one of the islands in Italy, in, in, in Egypt, they would ask the Pythonists, they would send to Delphi. They also brought gifts and made additional tithes to the Oracle when they were successful. However, the ambiguity of the Pythonists' oracles led the Greeks to refer to to Apollo as Holoxias, or the Ambiguous One. Of course, the, the place was, Delphi was also considered by the Greeks to be the center or the navel of the earth. Many other legends and myths were therefore associated with the place, and many other attributes and legends were associated with Apollo. The word python appears only here in the New Testament. The verb man omahi means to divine or to prophecy or to presage, and that word also appears only here in the New Testament. This type of divination, called mantia in Greek, and that's the word which is used for it throughout the Septuagint, this type of divination was forbidden in Israel. In contrast, another word, prophetes, prophet, was used related to biblical prophecy all throughout the Old Testament. Now, there were false prophets, but mantia referred strictly to the type of divination which we would call sorcery, and it was absolutely forbidden. The site of the Oracle of Delphi and its temple were finally destroyed circa 390 A.D. in the name of Christianity by the order of the emperors Theodosius I and his son and co-ruler Arcadius. In an ongoing campaign against paganism, even in its best light, Christians should view this type of sorcery as demonic activity and ascribe no true legitimacy to any of it. Verse 17. She, following after Paul, the girl possessed by the demon, the demon of the python, she, following after Paul and us, cried out, saying, These men are servants of Yahweh, the highest, who declare to you the way of salvation. Some manuscripts have, who declare to us. The last phrase of this text may have been, who declare to you a way of salvation, since the definite article does not appear in Greek. In context... I believe the difference is immaterial in this instance. Some commentators do elaborate upon it. Verse 18, and this she did for many days. Then Paul, being quite troubled and turning to the spirit, said, I order you in the name of Yahshua Christ to depart from her. And it departed at that same moment. Literally, the demon departed at that same hour. The Greek word hora is really, though, only an indefinite period of time and not necessarily an hour. The Codex Beze has a different Greek word. It says, and immediately it departed. The Apostle James said in his epistle, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe it. And they shudder. Yet, that does not mean that we should ever enlist the demons to our cause, which is why Christians shouldn't conciliate, appease, or compromise with people of other races. From this instance here, Christians must derive an important lesson. That Christ does not need the help of demons, even if those demons, as this one was, even if those demons agreed to the truth. And knowing this, identity Christians should indeed reject the likes of out-of-the-closet Jews and other aliens who only appear to have turned against evil. Joseph November, Nathaniel Kappner, James Manning, Bobby Fisher, Jeff Rance, Harold Rosenthal, or the host of others who pretend to stand against Satan when in fact they too are little bit demons fulfilling an antichrist agenda in one manner or another. They turn against one evil while they allure you into embracing another evil. The most popular ploy is to embrace universalism while displaying antipathy for communism and Zionism, when in reality, universalism is worldwide communism and worldwide Zionism. Yes, it is. Verse 19. So the lesson there is that we don't need demons on our side. Paul didn't need this, Paul didn't need this woman with a demon on his side. Even though she appeared to be telling the truth, we don't need demons. Verse 19, And their masters seeing her, because the hope of their business departed, taking Paul and Silas, they dragged them into the market before the rulers. Now in ancient times in Greece, the, the administrators and magistrates of a city sat in the markets daily and heard cases brought to them by citizens. This practice is seen again in Ephesus as it is recorded at Acts 19.38. Although in that passage, the King James Version has law for the same word, which means market, right? Augurs, or diviners, were employed with regularity in Rome, even by the noble classes and the emperors. And Tacitus often mentions this in his writing, so does Livy. And they were a class among the priests. Augurs were a special sort of pagan priest. They were probably also the primary prospects for Lydia's trade in purple, and cloth, purple cloth and dye, since they officially wore purple garments. However, here it may be evident that the priesthood did not have the market on divination cornered, since there is no indication that these men were indeed pagan priests. However, they were profiting from the ability of divination attributed to their slave girl by the demon that possessed her. And this business was lost once Paul expelled the demon. Many Christians often give in to worldly and so-called scientific paradigms and dismissed the demonic possession described in scripture as the manifestation of some sort of illness, or perhaps some psychotropic phenomenon. However, it is evident here that this girl's possession must have been more than just a simple state of mind. It was more than just a disease. Since once the demon was expelled, the girl clearly suffered a sudden and noticeable change in her personality, and her ability that cannot be explained from such a secular perspective. Her possession must have been more than an illness, since Paul spoke to the demon, as Christ often addressed the demons who answered him in return, and Paul did not merely address the girl whom the demon spirit possessed. Her possession and her ability to divine when she was possessed, must have been of substance. Since the demon-possessed girl was indeed able to divine the mission of Paul and Luke in his company, and professed the basic truth of that mission, without any indication in Luke's writing that she could have known about it in some other manner." So the demon possession of the New Testament has to be of real substance. This leads to a discussion on the meaning of the word, the true meaning of the word exorcism. The Greek word, exorciste, Strong's number 1845, appears only once in Scripture. Liddell and Scott define the noun as an exorcist. That's the transliteration. However, the Greek verb, which is a companion to that noun, exortizo, from whence the noun is derived, means to exhort, as well as to conjure, or even to make one swear. And in that manner, the word is used in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 24, verses 3 and 37, and in Genesis chapter 50, verses 5 and 6 and elsewhere. Here it is asserted that these men who were profiting from the demon-possessed slave girl were actually exorcists. That's what I would call them. In the sense that they exhorted the demon that they may profit from it. The word exorchizo meaning to exhort as well as to conjure. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 13, the King James Version reads, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Now that word translated as adjure in that passage is the Greek verb orchizo. Which is the root of the verb exorcizo, which gives us the, the the verb in English to exorcise, to perform an exorcism. Exorcizo is only a strengthened form of orkizo. Knowing the full meaning of the term exorcist, one who conjures, or one who adjures, or one who exhorts, it becomes evident. That just like here in Acts chapter 16, those men who were called exorcists in Acts chapter 19, they didn't seek to, to expel the demon, the seven sons of Sceva, the vagabond Jew. They weren't trying to help the person possessed by the demon. They weren't trying to expel the demon. They were trying to control the demon, that they could profit from the demon, just like these men were doing here certainly not to cast them out from their poor victims. That's the real meaning of exorcist. Maybe one who casts out demons could be called an exorcist that in, in the sense that he's attempting to exhort the demon to lead the possessed person. And that's fine. That's one form of exhortation, but it's only one form. An exorcist wants to control the demon to profit from the person possessed. That's very plain here in this chapter. That's the fuller meaning of the word, and that's how it should be interpreted in Acts chapter 19. Verse 20 of Acts 16, And bringing them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men agitate our city, being Judeans. And they declare customs which are not lawful for us to receive nor to do, being Romans. And, and this is a very important passage to me, and we're going to spend a little time on it. First, that word, the Greek word strategos is commonly a general. Here it's a chief magistrate. And the chief magistrates in certain Greek cities were called strategoi or generals, right? Liddell and Scott explain that in their lexicon, so it's chief magistrate here. Here the men declare that being Romans, it is not lawful for them to adopt the religious customs being declared by Paul and his companions. All this is, to me, it's important both in understanding the context of the book of Acts and and the challenges the apostles had, And even more important on a grander scale, the challenge that Christianity had to overcome in pagan Rome and why it was so easy for the Jew to entice the Romans to persecute Christians, which they did right from the beginning. I mean, we don't see it in history books. A lot of the modern commentaries tell you that the first persecutions happened in the time of Nero. That's simply not true. When we get to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, it'll be demonstrated that the persecutions of Christians began as early as the days of Claudius. Actually Stephen actually Christ was the first Christian persecuted, right? I'm sorry, but, but Stephen was the first martyr and, and that was in the days of when when Tiberius was still the emperor. But the, the, the first serious widespread persecutions of Christians, it'll be demonstrated in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe, began in the days of Claudius, not in the days of Nero. And, and mainstream commentaries, they gloss over that, or, or, or they just don't know any better. And, and that's more why, if they're reading the King James Version, that they don't know any better. If they're reading the Greek, they should know better. These men declared that being Romans, it is not lawful for them to adopt the religious customs being declared by Paul and his companions. Religion was regulated in Rome both by law and tradition. There were strong ties between Roman civil and social life and their pagan religious beliefs. In Rome, in ancient Rome, every head of household embodied the genius spirit of his ancestors, and was therefore granted cult status, vows of loyalty and even worship were granted to him, and oaths were sworn on his name by both family members and slaves, household slaves. Dead ancestors became the family gods of the afterlife or underworld. However, This was all within the scope of private family life, extended only as far as the limits of each household or estate. It was part of the glue that kept extended families together. In the Roman Republic, along with the pagan Roman pantheon, the legendary founders Romulus and Ahenius were publicly worshipped as gods and that was like a larger scale of the same family-level religion which the Romans practiced. Later, and as it is evident in the writings of the poet Virgil, most especially, Julius Caesar was said to be descended from Aeneas and from the goddess Venus in order to strengthen his claim to divinity. And all of the ancient Greeks claimed to be descended from one god or another. So it wasn't a fantastic thing for for Caesar to claim this. After Rome became an empire, these religious beliefs found a greater manifestation in the imperial cult. The Roman cult of emperor worship was instituted in the time of Julius Caesar, who was worshipped as a god even while he lived. Strabo, the Greek historian and geographer who wrote until about 25 AD, consistently referred to Julius Caesar in his writing as the deified Caesar. Octavian, or Augustus Caesar he's popularly known as, he'll be called Octavian here, Octavian was also worshipped as a god in the later period of his rule and called by the title Caesar Divi Filius or son of deified Caesar or son of the god Caesar. So Augustus claimed to be the son of God. The imperial cult was further developed and strengthened under Octavian. The senate then began the practice of voting deceased emperors to the status of divinity, as was the case with Julius and Octavian, and then offering each living emperor such a cult status while he was yet alive. This served to show that the emperor's rule was divinely approved, and the divine right of kings was later claimed by European monarchs which should only be viewed by Christians as a stage in Israel's punishment under the beast systems. The imperial cult did not replace traditional Roman religion, but was rather a supplement to it. However, it was seen by some traditionalists in Rome as an impious innovation. They didn't have much of a leg to stand on when it came to protesting that. When the Roman Senate began granting the emperors an imperial cult, the emperor's genius or spirit would be worshipped publicly. Sacrifices would be made to the emperors. Images of the emperor would be set up throughout the empire, and oaths would be taken on that genius or spirit of the emperor. The military was required to take oaths of loyalty to the emperor. Later, Caligula demanded to be directly worshipped as a god, and Nero also claimed such divinity. Octavian was considered to have been Zeus incarnate, and therefore Nero claimed to be Apollo incarnate. Soon after Octavian, and long before Nero, effigies of Tiberius were expected to be set up in temples everywhere and worshipped which caused distress in Jerusalem, as Josephus explains how Pontius Pilate had brought, and this is after the crucifixion, had brought the effigies of Tiberius Caesar into Jerusalem and records the turmoil which resulted from his doing so. Antiquities, book 18, chapter 1. Emperors in Rome were also called by the title Savior. which was also a title popularly used by the Roman people in reference to victorious generals or other benefactors. Seneca, Nero's tutor, is said to have called him the long-awaited savior of the world. Later, towards the end of the first century, Domitian adopted the title Lord and God, and as a test of loyalty, he commanded people to address him in that manner, according to Suetonius, Lives of the Caesars. Book okay. At the time of these events here in Acts, Claudius was the emperor, and while Claudius actually resisted the Senate's appointment of an imperial cult for himself, he nevertheless participated in the veneration and worship of his dead predecessors. Claudius had the wife of Octavian elected to divine status by the Senate long after her death. I believe it was 13 years after her death. Claudius also accepted the cognomen of Caesar and the title pater patriahi, or father of the fatherland, a title which Octavian himself also once held. With all of this, it may become evident as to why the acceptance of Christianity was unlawful and even considered to be treasonous for a Roman. Seeing the God of the Scripture as the Eternal Father and admitting his son, Joshua Christ, to be both God and Savior is to deny these titles to the emperor and there's also a denial of the traditional Roman gods. Yet the emperors were accustomed to being seen as God and Savior in order to maintain their tyranny over the peoples of an ethnically diverse empire. For this reason, there were temples to the emperors, and their images were set up all over the empire. There was a temple to Claudius in Britain, even though he rejected the divinity cult for himself as he lived. Yet Christianity precluded such practices as the worship of men. For these reasons alone, it was inevitable that Paul would fail in his trial to persuade Nero and for Christians to be persecuted by the Roman state. From the very beginning, the Jews understood what the Messiah was, even if they did not accept the Messiah. And therefore they accused Christ before the Roman authorities as, saying of himself to be the anointed king, as the statement in Luke twenty-three two should be read, trying to convince Pilate that Christ was guilty of sedition against Rome. Today, we should be able to perceive, if we really watch the, 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 the world around us, we should be able to perceive that the subliminal form of imperial cult has slowly developed in our modern American society. Citizens pledge allegiance to a flag, and the military vows hail to the chief, thereby recognizing its allegiance to the executive of the state, The government and the tax codes have been used as tools by which religion is usurped so that it conforms to, or at least does not interfere with, either the political process or the perceived will of the state. However, because the state itself is now under control of international bankers, who are predominantly Jewish, Rather conveniently, Bibles with commentaries that promote the Jews as a people above all other peoples were developed around the same time that the bankers gained control of the government through the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And those Bibles have become an important tool in maintaining both the elevated status of the Jews and the imperial status quo. It is not a mistake. It is not a coincidence. That both the Schofield and the Bollinger Bibles, both of them first appeared in 1909. It's not a mistake or a coincidence that they're both still promoted heavily to this very day. From a time of the Great Depression, which was engineered by those same bankers, the American people have been conditioned to see the government as both God and Savior while only giving lip service to Christ. In order to maintain an empire, one must enforce a tyranny, and the tyrant must control the religion of the people in order to conform them to his will. So it was in Rome, so it is in America today. In order to maintain an empire, the idea that all peoples and cultures are of one and the same value must be enforced. Therefore, the satanic ideas of egalitarianism, multiculturalism, and diversity have become one with the approved religious values of the state and are taught by all state-approved religions. Throughout most of white society, if the Christian principles of election and separatism If those principles are taught, then accusations of hate speech and appeals to political correctness are invoked to counter those principles. These are indeed the modern equivalents to the statement that they declare customs which are not lawful for us to receive nor to do, being Romans. All we have to do is substitute Romans with, Englishmen, or Spaniards, or Americans, or Germans. It's coming in America. It's already in England, Spain, and Germany. With most citizens blindly obeying the government, Caesar has become God once again. We're right where we ended up 2,000 years ago if we want to practice real Christianity. Verse 22. And the crowd stood up against them. Excuse me. And the crowd stood up against them. And the Codex Beze adds, crying out. And the chief magistrates, tearing off their garments, commanded them to be beaten. And laying upon them many blows, they cast them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them securely who, receiving such an order, cast them into the inner cell and secured their feet in stocks. The magistrates tore off the garments of Paul and Silas, in case anyone is confused by the ambiguity of the pronoun. Just as a translation note, the Greek word phoulake here is generally a prison, and it is in verse 23, but it's a cell It's a cell later in the same statement in reference to a specific place within the prison in verse 24. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praising Yahweh, and the prisoners were listening to them. Praising, the Greek word, the Greek verb, humneo, is a form of the noun "humness." which gives us the English word hymn, H-Y-M-N. It's to praise here, but it infers the act of praising by singing, the singing of hymns. Then suddenly a great earthquake came, so as to shake the foundations of the jailhouse. And immediately all the doors were opened, and all the fetters let go the stocks in which their feet were secured. The word desmoterion is jailhouse here to distinguish it from fulakai, which is prison and cell in the previous verses. Once again, those held captive for Christ are released in a miraculous manner. However, here, contrary to expectation, nobody chose to escape, which also must have been the will of God. And the text infers, it doesn't say it explicitly, but the text infers that the other prisoners were captivated by the word of God through Paul and Silas, and that's why they didn't escape. Verse 27. And the jailer, coming from sleep, and seeing the doors of the prison opened, drawing a sword, was about to slay himself believing the prisoners to have fled away. But with a great voice, Paul cried out, saying, Do nothing evil to yourself, for we are all here. Now the words in Paul's exclamation seem to be prophetic, because since the jailer, and we will see that in the next passage, since the jailer required a light to see, it is unlikely that Paul who had very poor eyesight, could have seen the jailer and his intentions when he drew the sword. In Acts chapter twelve, verse nineteen, we see Herod treat of the guards who, in his perception, in his perception, had allowed Peter to escape. In that passage it is said that Herod Examining the guards commanded them to be taken away. However, the Greek word for taken away, which is the way I translated it in the Christogian New Testament, may have been rendered metaphorically as put to death, as the King James has it in that passage. Here, with the intent of the jailer being to commit suicide, as he imagined the prisoners to have escaped, we may see an indication that the jailer did indeed fear a punishment of death in such an event, even though it is obvious that the circumstances were beyond his control. The jailer couldn't prevent an earthquake. Verse 29, And requesting a light, he burst in, and coming trembling, fell before the feet of Paul and Silas. I'm sorry, fell before Paul and Silas. The Codex Beze has fell before the feet of Paul and Silas. And leading them outside, he said, masters, what is necessary for me to do that I be saved? And they said, Believe in the prince, Yahshua, and you and your house shall be saved and the Codex Beze has several other interpolations here which I'll leave for my notes. It should be apparent that more was said to the jailer but Luke only recorded the jailer's conclusion. Otherwise, no context is provided in explaining the jailer which would explain the jailer's inquiry. Verse 32. And they spoke to him, the word of the prince, with all those in his house. And some codices, the better ones, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, actually have the word of God. Verse 33. And taking them at that hour of the night, he washed their wounds. Literally, that's he washed from the blows, the blows which they received. And he and all those of his house were immersed immediately. And there are also several differences among the manuscripts here. Some manuscripts have he and his old house. Some have he and all his house. And bringing them up to the house, he provided a table. And they rejoiced with all the house believing in Yahweh. And those words which are literally translated provided a table Infer with certainty the serving of the meal. Verse 35. Then day coming, the chief magistrates sent to the ballot, saying, Release those men. The Codex Beze, it has a lot of interpolations in this chapter, which I haven't read. They'll be in my notes for the most part. The Codex Beze has verse 35 to read. Then day coming, the chief magistrates gathered in one place in the market and remembering the earthquake, becoming fearful. Then they sent to the bailiff, saying, release those men who you received yesterday. And of course, they, I would treat them as interpolations, but the Codex Beze's interpolations, some of them are off the wall, but most of them just seem to want to clarify the story. attempting to perhaps enrich the descriptions of Luke's very plain and simple and concise Greek. The word "bailiff," the Greek word rabidukas, is literally one who carries a rod or staff of office. And in Rome, it was a magistrate's attendant of the lictors who carried the fasces and therefore it's bailiff here. That word, that Roman word, that Latin word, lictor, is an attendant and bodyguard of a magistrate, which is equivalent to a bailiff in our system. I believe it's sergeant in the King James Version. Verse 36, And the jailer announced those words to Paul, that the chief magistrate sent in order that you be released. So now, departing, you go in peace. And Paul said to them, flaying us, in public, being uncondemned Roman men, they cast us into prison, and now secretly they would cast us out? Indeed not. Rather, coming... They themselves must lead us out. Now, this is is interesting because this will be the first of, of several times this happens to Paul. In the Roman Empire, only men who were Roman citizens and free men had the right to wear a toga in public. And that would have identified Paul as a free Roman citizen. Evidently, neither Paul nor Silas, because Silas was also a Roman, neither of these men exercised that right, even though they fully had it. Now, non-citizens and slaves were treated quite differently, and they weren't allowed to wear togas. It was unlawful to punish free Roman citizens without due process. And this is what happened to Paul here. He was thrown in jail and punished, being a free Roman citizen without due process. If he'd have have chosen to wear a toga, then everybody he encountered would have understood that he was a free Roman citizen. It's obvious that he chose not to wear a toga. It's obvious that he probably dressed as... The common class is dressed or as the Judeans dressed. Or otherwise, he would have been recognized as a free Roman citizen, which he was. This is an issue again upon Paul's arrest by the Roman commander in Acts chapter 22, where Paul is about to be beaten by the centurion, and he professes that he's a, he, he's a Roman citizen and the beating couldn't be conducted. It's unlikely, in my opinion, that here Paul made this insistence to be freed by the magistrates themselves simply because his feelings as a Roman citizen were injured. Perhaps here, perhaps Paul uses this as an opportunity to once again exhort the leaders of the city. However, in any event, Luke did not record any explicit reason or any exchange between Paul and the leaders. Verse 38. Then the bailiffs announced these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid, hearing that they are Romans. And coming, they summoned them, and leading them out, asked them to depart from the city. And departing from the prison, they went to Lydia, meaning the woman, and seeing the brethren, encouraged them, and they departed. I'm going to read two verses from the Codex Beze, just as another example of its many interpolations. The Codex Beze, the King James doesn't follow it very often. It does sometimes. But the Codex Beze was the only major ancient codex that that would have been available to the King James translators. And it reads verse 39 and 40 like this. And arriving at the prison with many friends, they summoned them to come out, saying, We were ignorant of the things against you, seeing that you were righteous men. And bringing them out, exhorted them, saying, Depart from this city, lest those shouting against you return to us. And departing from the prison, they went to Lydia, and seeing the brethren, related as much as the prince did for them, encouraging them, and they departed. Now, from the opening text, the the, the opening verses of chapter 17, it is clear that from this point, Paul and Silas departed from Philippi, where Lydia lived, to go to Thessalonica. It is also evident that Luke was not jailed along with Paul and Silas, but rather recorded the account as having received it from them later. It is further evident that Luke stays with Lydia. He does not accompany Paul on his further trip through Macedonia or from there on to Athens and Corinth. Luke must therefore also have received those accounts later on, adding them to his records. Luke does not write from this point, he does not write in the first person again until Acts chapter 20 at verse 6 where he is among others who are sailing from Philippi to meet Paul and his company in the Troad. The time covered by Acts chapters 18 and 19 alone is a period of at least three and a half years, where Paul is recorded as having spent two years in Corinth and a year and a half in Ephesus. It is not likely that Luke spent all of that time in Philippi But his own travels are not recorded unless Paul was involved. So it cannot be told how much of this time he may have actually spent with Paul or how long he did stay in Philippi without him. Luke is not mentioned in Paul's company in any of those epistles which Paul wrote while he was free. And we will be exhibiting the likely times when Paul wrote many of his epistles as we complete our presentation of the book of Acts. Luke is not mentioned in Paul's company in any of those epistles which Paul wrote while he was free unless he is the Luke, Lucius or the Lucius of the epistle to the Romans. Now, the epistle to the Romans was most likely written from Cancria, which is near Corinth, where Paul is recorded as having stopped in Acts 18.18. It's possible it was written from Greece later on. Luke is only mentioned in two epistles which Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome, which are those which were written to the Colossians and the second epistle to Timothy it can be fairly determined that perhaps seven of Paul's surviving epistles were written during his travels, and seven were written after he was arrested by the Romans in Judea. And with that, we conclude Acts chapter 16. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night. Tomorrow night should be an inter- interesting program. We will be discussing, for the most part, Genesis chapter 2 from my, my own 2C line perspective. And it should be good, I, I pray. I will be here next week with Acts chapter 17, one of, my, one of my own favorite chapters of Acts. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.